how about this? How about we do some rapid fire questions? Okay, what's your favorite color? Red. Uh, favorite drink? Bourbon. What's your favorite zoo animal? Meerkat. What's your favorite not zoo animal? <laughs> Jake. Oh, it's, well, yeah, it makes sense. If you could be anywhere in the world right now, where would you choose to be? Not Memphis. Not Memphis. Boiling my water. Uh, I would be, I would be, well, this is hard, in the mountains with my people. Which of your friends would do best on Jeopardy? I think Sarah Wolf would do awesome on Jeopardy. Welcome to God in the Wild, a podcast exploring the faith journeys of members of Idlewild Presbyterian Church. This podcast is produced by the Young Adult Ministry in collaboration with the Nurture Ministry Unit. I'm Elizabeth Doolin, the Director of Young Adult Ministry. And I'm Jacob Pierce, the Director of the Nurture Ministry Unit. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Okay, so uh, introduce yourself and tell us what role you serve at Idlewild. <laughs> really? Wait, um, hold on. We should probably, for the recording, we should probably introduce ourselves. So we should just say, hi, I'm Andrew Falls. I'm Laura Falls. Maybe you tell a little bit about yourselves, like how you got involved at Idlewild. Well, I got involved at Idlewild because I started dating Andrew. <laughs> and he went to Idlewild and I was like, oh, I guess I'll go too. And I went because my aunt Cherry Falls was going and see, she suggested that I uh, come and visit. And then later I joined. But back when you were a student at Rhodes, right? Yeah. So you've been going you were a long or... visitor. Off and on, a, a visitor off and on for a long time. And then once I properly moved to Memphis. Became In 2012. Mem- yes. Way, way back many centuries ago. Mm. Not long after the Bible began, yeah. yeah, Andrew moved to Memphis, Tennessee. I'm Ann H.K. Apple. Uh, I've just completed serving as the executive associate pastor and acting head of staff until a new head of staff is on the field and laboring, who we now have, David Laboring. So I am back as an executive associate pastor Though I've served in many roles at Idlewild. I served as a parish associate probably first is how I kind of came into the church. And then as an interim associate. And then as the associate for pastoral care and evangelism. And then into this interim role um, with a fancy long title. And you married us. And I married you. Aww. What do you get when you put a Methodist with a Presbyterian? Fun hymn lyrics. that is true that might have been my favorite part of our wedding ceremony which sounds bad to say but when warren leaned over or you leaned over to who warren leaned over to you and said there's your debtor got your debtor in (laughs) it's like warren Mm. your mic's on hot mic (laughs) oh my gosh it was the lord's prayer yeah I was thinking it was the hymn, but it was the Lord's Prayer. Mm. Uh, Such good people. Such good people. Okay. You've been part of several areas of ministry at Idlewild, so we're going to ask you some questions reflecting on the variety of your gifts for ministry. You've been part of planning and leading the Nakomi trip throughout your work. Tell us 
something that has been special to you about the Nicomi trip? Well, I think the, the, the most special part about Nicomi is just the people gathered there and the fun that we have there. But when I think through some of the fun, let me think about how to say this. Maybe it's through story. One of our first Nakomis, uh, you know, you don't know who you're going to get matched with in a cabin. Or at least that's how they did it back when 20 years ago. And so we ended up in a cabin with Gib and Nancy Wilson, Ray and Louise Allen, Andrea and Lee Franks, and the Apples. And we all had, well, the Wilsons and the Apples were both older parents with older kids and then a baby. And so we were like the, we were like the special set that they kind of set us aside. So, you know, a kind of, but we didn't know any of those people. So we had this privilege of, um, you know, sitting on the front porch, nursing babies while our other kids were out, you know, trusting that our kids were safe to be out there. So I think as community has been an important part, but some of the most treasured, uh, oh my gosh, I think they're the baptisms to step and almost lose a boot and think, oh my God, I'm going to drop this baby. One of the burger, uh, one of the burger baptisms at Nakomi, after it was all over, well, no, let me just say it this way. Doing baptisms at Nakomi is a pretty special thing because I love that song. We went down to the river to pray and we have walked through rain at Nakomi down to the edge of the creek to baptize babies. We've stood at the edge on a, just a bitter cold day and um, baptized babies and almost lost a boot or a shoe. <laughs> but just the privilege of um, it's a there's an intimacy when you're out in the beauty of nature and baptizing a baby creekside um, that's a little bit different than it is in the sanctuary next to the, that beautiful font that we have, that sculpture that we have. But uh, so the privilege of that. Um, I've done one wedding at Nakomi and Margaret and I shared that together and it was Sherry and Forrest Gross. And Noah Brooks was one of the readers at the wedding, um, but we'd never done that before. And it was in October. And so there was the church gathered to celebrate a wedding and it, you know, when all the fancy invitations and all that, it was just, this is our community and we want to you know, make these promises before God in this context. And that was beautiful. And then Jennifer Valley and Jonathan Botter. I'm not even sure if it was a wedding anniversary, but they wanted to renew their wedding vows. And so one night we just kind of gathered around the fire pit and there in the community of the church, they spoke their vows to one another with their teenage boys right by their side. And, you know, that privilege to, um, to know that those promises matter and that you want to speak them again in front of uh, people with whom you share a life of faith in Christ. Those are, those are some of the tender moments that I, has, I would tell you have been important about Nakomi. Then they're also like one of the first Nakomis we went, there's a guy named Bill Mann and he went early and he got some of his buddies and they got on hazmat suits and they got in the creek <laughs> And so when people started arriving, there were hazmat workers, you know, in the creek. <laughs> so, you know, we're all coming to Nakomi to play in the creek, but what's that? So, and, and Bill was a great prankster. So, you know, he'd rig a fishing line. So when you were walking past the cabin that he was staying in, he'd drop like a tarantula on a wire right in front of you. <laughs> um, 
And so I guess I would tell you what was what's really been special about Nakomi are the, you know, the baptisms, the wedding, uh, the pranks and really the people and at play together. That's yeah. And the Nakomi added some high ropes course pieces. And so to see Steve Montgomery strapped into that, um, you know, kind of that vest and pulled. So, you know, 20 feet in the air and just let loose. And you're like, you're going, don't cuss, don't cuss, don't cuss, don't cuss. You know, <laughs> anyway, some of those, you know, you're just bound together in some different ways at church camp. There was a camp when uh, tornadoes came through. And so everybody had to hide under, like you had to get out of the cabin up under the cabin in the dirt. Didn't want to go back after that. Mm -mm. So I said, I guess it'd be the, the people at play and pranks and wet weddings and wet a wedding and a bat and those baptisms and maybe the boat races, the excitement of playing together, watching boats float down the creek. That's awesome. Well, everything but the <laughs> the tornadoes. That's not awesome at all. Do you know we had um, Katie Taylor and. Uh, Sam Allen, I think we're both there, who were both um, children of the church who had some disabilities in mobility and like watching the church like have to work together to how to how do we make this happen for the safety of these children. Um, it's one of those profound things where you just you do what you got to do for the safety of the whole and um, just wow. Just wow. It's like the night uh, Noah Brooks ate a cookie that had peanut butter in it. And he's allergic to, you know, peanuts and just watching the whole like the way people came together. I guess it's just a family, a big old family experience. You have had a relationship with athletics at Idlewild in several capacities as player, parent, coach, etc. Could you tell us a memory about athletics that stands out to you? I can't just tell one memory, <laughs> but I will tell you the smell of the ramp going between the Jones building and the sanctuary building I associate that with February and those conversation hearts that come in a little box because I, I played basketball for, an, for, for a rec league for a church out East, but we played at Idlewild. And so our, our, you know, it was a, it was a trip from out East to come to Midtown. You know, it was at least 20 minutes to get there, but we got those conversation heart box boxes, like with that kind of flowery stuff and they have a particular smell. Um, so I just, I don't know, there's an association with that kind of flowery candy and the smell of the ramp where I, it, it takes me back to my childhood. So our children played uh, different sports for Idlewild through time. And I think the thing that was important to Gemini is we watched how the church was committed to the experience, like learning some of the skills, but not to the competition to the point where a child didn't get to participate. So. In the soccer season, our James, all he wanted to do was be the goalie because he would bring a book and he would sit on the end of the field so he didn't have to worry about playing while that all that stuff was going on at the other end. And so he would just sit on the field and read his book until the play came towards him at the other end. So James didn't last long with the soccer. Uh, but Betsy played on a high school girls team and they had this, um, let's just say that offensively they were challenged but they had the best defense out there and they had a play that was called the barnyard play. And when the girls crossed the midcourt line, 
they would just start making animal noises. <laughs> it was like, moo, cock-a-doodle-doo. <laughs> the other t- it really worked well the first time they did it. But, um, you know, <laughs> like people would stop and go like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and they get called for traveling or something. And, you know, it did be a turnover. So, oh, it was so much fun. Those girls had so much fun together. Um, and those girls came from all over. They weren't all, they didn't all go to the same school or, they didn't all, you know, I guess that's part of the, the beauty of what was Idlewild's recreation ministry is because it drew people from the community. And so our kids had friends that were outside of their school and outside of their church. It was kind of a new, it was a different kind of a group of people. And really that worked best for Betsy and Abigail, their experiences. Abigail played on a team when one of the teammates' fathers was killed in a car accident and watching, um, watching the team but also the church respond in that situation to support that that's where i first learned about um angela and her work with the center for good grief and kind of the profound work and and you know through that ministry and with our kids and their roles in athletics you know you just i don't know just we were grown in some pretty special ways profound ways and really, and maybe I also played women's ball when we first moved to Memphis for about five years, I played on the women's league. But when I, when I like signed up to play, there's a, there's a guy at church who we call coach, but it's, his name is Charlie Emmerich. And when I signed up to play, I mean, it was like after church one day, like after worship one day, he looked at me and he goes, can you run? <laughs> and I was like, can I run? It's like the most offensive question I've ever been asked. I'm like, <laughs> yes, I can run coach. So he would, he'd look down the bench and um, I had my daughter's gift for defense and he'd go, I need a runner, get out there, (laughs) you know? So really, I think what I would tell you, I coached with your aunt. So I guess it's just the, I guess my experience in athletics at Idlewild, it's about the community. Again, I find myself talking about the community and how that, you know, just it grows your heart to something bigger than yourself but a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Kind of along those same, that same vein, you have kind of formed a community uh, within the running community, especially within Idlewild. That's something else that y'all share. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about pre-COVID, a little <laughs> bit about your running group that you kind of got up and going? Well, you know, I think uh, for me, uh, our bodies are part of uh, the health of our physical bodies is also part of a uh, life of faith. And I can remember Andrew, the first time we ran together, um, I think we were trying to outrun one another. Like, I'm like, I am slow, but we were like, uh, I got to show Andrew that I can run. I'm an old woman, but I got to run. But we wore one another out that day. Yeah. Um, I think it took us a little while to figure out like, to know the limits of like, okay, we, we should both just slow down a little bit. Like, let's, let's reel it back in. <laughs> reel it back in. But also just because the pace of life with children, I'm like, I had to, I had, if I was going to work out and I needed to, I'm much more a morning person than an evening person. And so I really needed to run in the morning. And, um, and there was a small group of people from church who were willing to run. And so meeting in the dark in the park and um, running with like headlamps on and, Andrew and Galen, two of the members of that group, could really make some um, fun of the shadows coming out of the woods. Um, 
but you know, that was, that was a small group, but we all, we had a goal to run for St. Jude. And so also I think when you make a commitment to meet somebody and to do the kind of the training that you have to do to reach a goal, like a half marathon or a marathon, you just build uh, a friendship that's like, it's a hard bond to break. And like, it's one of the things I've really missed in COVID is not being able to meet that group of people. And so we may be the dorkiest dorks out there running, talking about the shadow puppets. And <laughs> we're also the only people out there. So really, <laughs> this is, this is true. But, you know, talking about what God, I can't even remember now, the, uh, I would always make a misstep, like the aerial, not aerial, but uh, God, help me think, Andrew. Um, oh, hold on. Uh, astral, astral. Yeah, it was the or, difference between astronomy and astrology and the astral plane. And we basically, we'd spin off from whatever we could of just like, you know, anything to distract us within the moments. And then, okay, the watch is beeping, time to like pick up the pace, time to slow down. And then back to like, okay, what are we talking about here? And we were always like the candy bar, the candy bar club, because like we didn't need those fancy sugar packets to run with because a candy bar would be okay for us at the right, yeah. pace, you know, we're those kind of runners. But uh, I think it was also more about the community that we formed as we ran, but it was also Absolutely. about, I think, staying healthy with, well, for me, it helped me to stay healthy, to get up. It helps my mental health and it helped my physical health to and emotional health really to meet somebody in the morning and to move and uh, kind of start my day that way. And then, you know, we met sometimes out at uh, the Wolf River and we had a larger group when we were out there, but we were all kind of differently abled. We, the yeah, real yeah. run, the real runners came there. <laughs> and they but, went on ahead and then they came back and we saw they them passed again. us. <laughs> And they passed us again. And then we met at the end. Yeah. So. And and we had some, you know, sometimes we'd gather together and go out to Shelby Forest and run at night and then come back to the house and light a fire. And everybody brought some part of a meal and we'd share a meal together, all pre-COVID. But mm -hmm. um, it's really, it is the community, you know. Absolutely. It is the community that's been. And those um, fun discussions we could have about astral planes and you know, astronomy, astrology, all the things. I'll say that, you know, I am not a runner. So if coach would ask me, I would have said, nope, not at all. Uh, but I always appreciated the community aspect after it. So the pasta parties, the dinner after, that was always fun. I feel like one of those St. Jude that St. from the year before COVID, the year before all came into this descent of all, all the things that 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 pasta party Galen's dad was here I mean it was just a yeah mm -hmm. we had babies I think somebody had somebody had a new baby I can't remember maybe it was was it Jonah yeah was it Jonah or was it Jeff and Amanda was it Luke uh, I think it was Luke I think that was maybe I don't remember T time, is, time is so fluid <laughs> I know see how we're getting old we can't remember but I do remember that I got to hold a baby and I love holding babies, so anyway. You were instrumental in forming 1750 Arts at Idlewild. Tell us about how you understand the relationship between art and faith. I'm not sure I really do understand the relationship, but I know that art is critical in my own spiritual uh, development and life. 
Um, and I think, you know, in the ways that art takes many forms, it could be music, it could be painting, it could be sculpture, collage, I mean, all sorts of different kinds of art, but uh, kind of like there are all those varieties of art. I think like people, there are a variety of gifts. And for me, art provides just a different lens to look at ourselves, to look at the world. And I think the part that I really like about art it has the ability to deconstruct the status quo and really challenge places of injustice in ways that you might not even know in the minute you're looking at it, but then it kind of, it, it swings and then you, you know, and there's that aha, like, oh my gosh, look what I'm looking at. You know, my sabbatical, I spent a lot of time in a lot of different art galleries and I mean, I've been going to art galleries all my life and I never realized that there were not black artists that were really displayed in classic collections in the galleries that I went to most. And there was a, a Chicago artist by the name of Charles White that I became familiar with on uh, during my sabbatical. And it was like, <laughs> how did I miss this? You know, I think I'm a child, like, how did I not see what I was not seeing? Art has awakened things in me that inform how I see the gospel. And a lot of it is because art also has lots of layers. And I think the gospel in some ways has many layers that you, you can read it at this surface level, but then you peel back and you understand that, oh wait, this word could also mean this in this context, what does it mean? And so, you know, you can stand in front of a, uh, a formal portrait and you can understand the way color was used, the way uh, cloth was particularly portrayed and what it says about what you're looking at. Um, so, and, and, and art, there's been art through time. And so when the early church was forming, you know, in the catacombs, people were marking figures on the walls of the catacombs and it was a way to communicate. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a figure that's in the catacombs in Rome and it's a woman's body with her arms out and it's called the Orans, the O-R-A-N-S, but it supposedly that was a message of those who came into the catacombs to worship, saying to those who had been buried there, go in peace, like go in peace. Oh. But it was also those who had been buried there, there was like a reflection back to the living, be at peace. And so, I mean, I'm like, when I think about, it was a sketch on a wall of a cave basically, but it, it, it communicated this message of peace beyond this kingdom, this earth. So I'm, I'm really taken by art because I believe there's a message there and it comes from the giftedness of the creator at work and the artist. Like one of the things that drives me crazy is when people say, I'm not creative. I can't be artistic. And I'm like, God is at work in you. And it's almost sinful to say I'm not creative because just allowing God to work through you, there is, you have a gift to offer. Um, because it's the gift of the creator at work in you. And that is your art to share before the world. And so I love like some of my, my office is just, uh, I say my office, my study is just full of images that kids have drawn for me or, you know, friends have drawn for me or photographs that people have taken because they, it's interesting to see, no, it is profound for me to see how children hear the gospel and how they translate it and maybe share it with the person that they're sitting on the pew with. But um, in my study at church, 
I have seven, well, I had, I've begun to take these down, I'm moving my study back home. But I have these seven images above the window and they're kind of my understanding of a woman in ministry. And one of them is, it's the, it's a pencil and line drawing of a mother hen. And it's that scripture that describes Jesus like a mother hen. And then the other is, I have a friend that's an artist in Atlanta. And one night, at one of our first meetings, um, we sat down and had a beer together and we were there for something at Columbia Seminary. And the next day he came up to me and handed me this watercolor that he had done the night before. And he goes, this is you. And it's this image of this wide open woman drinking a beer, you know, kind of late, you know, wide open, but it's that open heart. But that was his expression of what he saw, how he saw God at work in me. And it was kind of a challenge, like you got to stay open to do the work of ministry, because as soon as you begin to close yourself um, up, you're, you're going to, we're going to lose part of that gift that you offer the world. And one of the other images is a photograph that a previous member of the church took, his name, I can't, oh, Dave Darnell took it. And it's of our daughter, Betsy. And it was another snowmageddon when she was in high school. And the kids went down to the park with a sled. And literally the photographer caught Betsy midair, you know, catching air on the sled. And her face is just this, just broad joy. And so I also think ministry, you have to live in that joy. I mean, that's the joy that we're called to proclaim. And so that's, that's all art that I've been gifted with from other people but it helps me to tell the story of how God's called me to live in the world as a pastor, particularly. But um, so art, art's important. <laughs> art's important. Um, <clears throat> when we were under construction at Idlewild, you know, the fence was just going to be a plain fence, but we're like, Hey, let's put some boards up and let's, in let's invite people to just like, you know, put their handprints on it or, you know, let's, let's, let's make it uniquely Idlewild. Um, you know, it, it encu art encourages participation. We had a pottery studio that lay vacant in the basement of the 1928, um, no, in the basement of the Jones building, really, until Casey Thompson, who was a previous associate, was like, walked down there. He's like, hey, there are some wheels down here. Looks like this was a pottery studio once upon a time. And, you know, that's where Kevin and uh, Whitney Getman met at a pottery class. It was like, pottery, I don't know, it was like the gospel and pottery. So, I mean, like that, that kind of love can be met in the midst of, you know, art. Uh, it's kind of, I don't know. I, I, you know, it's funny when I, I hear myself talking about this, it's about the relationships that can be formed also in those collective experiences of practicing, um, exploring, you know, oh, I, I was going to say practicing art together, but I don't really even think it's a practicing of but it's uh, testing the limits or testing some boundaries of vulnerability. Like it doesn't have to be perfect. Let's see what comes. Um, but I also do think you learn about people when you get together around a, a shared art project. Cause you know, they're the, like the neat people who like have to color within the lines. And then they're the people that, you know, are messy, messy, messy. So it's also an interesting, um, you're that person. <laughs> I'm a messy person I would love to be the the within the lines person but I always just mess it up and then I'm just like well guess it's messy now <laughs> so yeah well and you have your abstract artists who are okay with things that are just you know it makes sense to them some metaphor and then you have the you know the still life people that it is what it is um and I think that kind of also communicates something about the breadth of gifts in a congregation you've got people that see Christ at work in the world this way 
And you have people that see Christ at work in the world this way, but we come together in this beautiful composition. I'm rambling about art, but I really do find it um, important. I love when kids, I love the opportunities that we've had at Idlewild for people to do bulletin covers. And it hasn't just been the professional artists, but we've invited both the professionals and, you know, different age groups to how do you understand the scripture? When we did, we did a sermon series, I think on the Lord's prayer one summer. And we had artists, I think we did four bulletin covers. We had a child do one. We had a young adult do one. We had a teenager do one and then another artist do one. They were radically different, but they, we also drew from what they saw and what they created. And we created these banners that we used in worship that the kids got to kind of unroll. And it made worship interactive in some ways, which I think is also formational for faith. So I love that Idlewild is a place where that kind of creativity can be, that Idlewild is a place where that kind of creativity is welcome or has been welcomed. And we've got some profound artists at church. Um, you have touched so many lives through the pastoral care. Who you wrote these questions? <laughs> well, not us, but we agree with them. What has it meant to you to offer pastoral care in the community? Um, you know, it's the greatest privilege to stand with your childhood, Pastor Laura, and, um, you know, to be invited into those most intimate places with families is just a gift. It's a gift of a pastoral calling, I think. It's a gift of the church. And there's so many stories. And I think what I've, what I've learned is that you really don't have to say much. You just have to listen. And maybe you have to ask a, the right question at the right time and just sit back and listen because there's a story that's needing to be told and, and God's at work in that story. And so as the pastor, as the person of faith, I find myself sometimes um, like part of my responsibility, I feel as a pastor is to, to say, I see Jesus right here. This is how I see God at work. And it is not all that, you know, I said, I've got that image of Betsy on a sled as an image of pastoral ministry. It's the joy, but joy is not free from suffering. And, and so those places of suffering and vulnerability are often some of the hardest places to stand in, but also the most um, intimate in the ways that they do point to the joy that we share in Christ. And that is not an easy thing to say, you know, uh, Jesus' life was not free from suffering. It's not all happy, happy, joy, joy. We wear this pretty silver cross on our neck. You know, it's a symbol of violence. Um, but that's the cross wasn't the end of the story. And so for me, um, oh my gosh, just so many stories. And it's probably the hardest part about leaving is because I think you, you, you are braided into the life of the people whom God has called you to serve and then to, and, and you share these stories 
which have these profound intimacy um, and, and, and to kind of untangle that as you're called away is just, whew, it's hard. It's hard because you still love, but yet part of the love is the separation. So there's so many places. There are just so many places. Like standing at, like for y'all, it was being down in Oxford and standing at, you know, the end of the aisle and, or waiting even to, you know, <laughs> I think the church was under construction. So we had some funky places where we had to be <laughs> before we could be in the church itself. But, you know, you know, just watching Andrew staring, standing with your parents. I don't know y'all just the, the prayers that you're able to offer um, or invite the blessings that you're able to invite in those kind of threshold moments with people. Those are profound. And I would, I would, it's not about me. It's about creating the space for, for those things to unfold. And, and those are beautiful. That's art for me. It's an art to see that happen, to walk into a room and see these widows standing around their friend's bed, drinking wine as she's on hospice, making her way out of this world. And, you know, not being afraid to, you know, walking into a hotel, not a hotel room, walking into a hospital room and seeing a wife literally in her house coat in her pajamas snuggled up in bed with her husband he's you know the next day is going to have potentially surgery that could he, he might not survive but to see you know being invited into that place to pray you know and then to see them months later walking down the aisle to come take communion you know this is Christ's body broken for you take and eat you know and the cup of salvation the cup of joy there have been a couple Ash Wednesdays where um, I've had the privilege of, I don't think it's a privilege, I've had maybe the burden, but the blessing of caring, um, knowing that somebody has a diagnosis of terminal cancer and watching them come and stand before you. And you take that ash and you take your thumb and say, from ash you came to ash, you know, from dust you came to dust you shall return. Knowing the profundity of that statement but yet here we are, we're in worship and we're gonna to proclaim together that Jesus is Lord and we're gonna make this statement knowing we're, and then later at that bedside as that person transitions from this life to the next, being able to recall that space, you know, when you wept together in the sanctuary, which points to that scripture of, you know, we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. Babies when they're born, <laughs> oh my gosh. Or when you find out about, babies that have been born um or even i mean just the in a congregation the size of ours we and with our growing young adult population one of the things that we have to hold a lot of is not all pregnancies come to term and the grief that's associated with the loss of life um in in that sense and being a community of faith where you don't have to hide that but you can share that with one another and you've got like the support of one another um so you know, maybe trying to create spaces for, that's pastoral care for me, is how do you create those spaces for that safety? Um, I have seen a family be very open um, about a struggle with a child and to watch the congregation just kind of like uh, come together around that family, um, whether it's meals, whatever that looks like, words of affirmation, that's the church being the church. And it really doesn't stop with just her own people. 
it also turns and moves outside of uh, that experience of worship into the parking lot, into places where people work. When Laura Russell joined the church, she was she's a nurse anesthetist, and Dennis was an anest Dennis Higdon was an anesthesiologist, and his wife Joanna had been diagnosed or had a recurrence of cancer, and um, it was just a conversation in an OR suite that really connected two people to pray together, and then really ended up as a moment of evangelism that Laura ended up coming to Idlewild eventually joining. So, you know, you just see those points of connection and that's about pastoral care. And it's not the pastor's job, it's the congregation's job. And I think we teach one another about that open vulnerability and how to care outwards, not, you know, you know I don't need to be needed. That's not why I give you care. I care for you in the name of Jesus Christ, who says, stand up and walk, even when you feel like you can't take another step. Those, ha those experiences happen over and over again. And yet also in the church, um, I see where we fail. And there are some who just feel like they have not been cared for. And that is the most, like, that is the, that is a place of pain for me. <laughs> um, to hear somebody say, I am so lonely and nobody came. You know, and, and, and what I hear in those places or those stories are, behold, I stand at the door and knock. <laughs> like Nobody answered it. And that's, that's, I did not, we did not meet Christ for that person. The Christ in that person for that person. That's a hard place. There's a, I don't know if this comes from hospice. I learned it from a hospice person, but they're like 11 words you say at a bedside of somebody that's dying. Please, for, please forgive me. I forgive you. <laughs> Thank you. I love you. Please forgive me. I forgive you. Thank you. I love you. And I mean, I, I kind of feel like what if that's the way we lived out our Christian faith because of Christ's love for us, we live in this world where we're able to say, um, please forgive me. <laughs> I forgive you. I, I'm sorry. I love you kind of what a hope for the church in some ways. Um, I, 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 I've preached this story, but I, I was in the parking lot for the food bank in the midst of the pandemic. And there was this black woman really yelling at one of our teenagers about like the way a car got moved in order. So she, her place in line got lost and she was yelling at this kid. And I'm like, please, please just be patient. <laughs> like we're out here trying to do the best we can. And she goes, I don't even, I can't even exactly remember what she said, but it was like, don't tell me to be patient. I've been out here since 5 a.m. in the morning. And all of a sudden I heard, you know, Martin Luther King and the white pastor saying, be patient, you know, quit protesting, you know, well, you'll eventually get justice. And I was like, all of a sudden I was that white pastor in the letter from the Birmingham jail. And so that woman really offered me pastoral care and grew me in some ways that, man, the church can be a strong place when we have that kind of sense of accountability with one another and in our community. And man, I think our world's in need of that kind of care. Now I'm preaching. I, I just, you know, when uh, Kristen Westcott's dad died unexpectedly, we just, you just go is what you do. You move, something in me says you just move towards the pain. 
when you are aware of the pain, you just move towards the pain and present yourself in that. And um, I had, I don't know, I had read something earlier in the day in a devotional kind of piece where it had talked about the knowledge and the importance of knowledge and memory points us towards hope. And so somehow that got deconstructed in that time sitting with Ben and Kristen, like looking at Kristen and saying like, what do you know today? Like right now, what do you know? And what do you hope? And like sharing that question around the circle of those who were there. So those phrases that were shared as everybody in that circle kind of shared, there's still like poetry in that years, you know? And, and it, it is like, it's a, it's a day that I won't forget. Ben Westcott called me way too early in the morning. So you answer the call when somebody calls you at 6.30 in the morning. And he's like, I don't know what to do. I've never, I don't, and I was like, you have to stop for a minute and tell me what's going on. Cause I don't know what you don't know what to do about what to do. Yeah. But the church was able to be present in that space, partly because he invited it. Like I trust this community to serve us in this place of despair. So it's profound for me. There are a lot of profound moments at the church, apparently. Many Ottawa members have also traveled with you to Cuba. <laughs> if you tell us a memory from one of the Cuba trips that stands out to you, I know this you is know, like this all these one. Other- so I think the uh, the gift of having that relationship with Juan, John John G Hall and Cardenas Cuba is really about the hospitality that we have known with brothers and sisters in Christ and the ways that our lives are woven together. And the Cuban context, which was a church that was persecuted, can teach us about being the church. And hospitality is part of that. And also just the truth of the gospel. So, you know, we go down there for the encounter with the people to build the relationships. We don't go to build something or to be eco-tourist, we go to build the relationship and to strengthen uh, the bond of Christ with this body of Christ here with our body. And that's a different understanding of mission than we're going to go do something, build a latrine, whatever, build a school. And so in those relationships, um, and and then we bring stories back. And so this was maybe our third trip. Um, We wanted to take a meal to share with them, like something that, you know, and what do you, like we're traveling to Cuba and we want to take a meal. So we went to the kitchen and we're like, Faye, what could you cook us that we could, we could freeze that would stay frozen enough for us to get to Cuba that we could cook. And she decided spaghetti was the, the, (laughs) this was her menu, spaghetti. So we could take the boxes of spaghetti, but she could freeze the sauce for us. And it could be a meat sauce that could be packed in a cool, you know, travel cooler. And then carrots and like small packages, a small package of mayonnaise and sugar and a lemon and raisins. And you could make carrot and a grater. So you could make carrot raisin salad. And so we took that, we took spaghetti and carrots and the raisins and the lemon and the mayonnaise. And, you know, there's a particular mayonnaise that you use to make that kind of salad. And, uh, and then we took candy, like we had, how it must've been around Halloween. Cause we took like chocolates, like Halloween candies. And um, they didn't have a stove with multiple burners. Like they had to cook like a big old pot of spaghetti. You know, they had like your grandmother's gallon pot and a one eye burner that we had to, and we fed like 
I don't know, 250 people. And so we started boiling water at 6 a.m. in the morning and just cooking the spaghetti and cooking the spaghetti and cooking the spaghetti and cooking the spaghetti pots of spaghetti. And um, we had, we brought cake mixes, but they didn't have an oven. They only had a toaster oven. And so thinking we were going to, you know, make a big sheet cake. We could, and so Jackie Baker was up in somebody's apartment in a toaster oven trying to make little cakes. And it took us longer to prepare the meal. For, and we had invited the community in Cardenas to come in, not just the church, but the community. So there were people like the church was full of people sitting at table. And this is a seated meal. So we were going to serve. And so <laughs> we, we took those chocolates out and like, this is our appetizer, miniature chocolates, <laughs> you know. But eventually we got it cooked and we were plating and it got served. This is my favorite memory probably, but the patience with us as we got the meal to the table, but also there wasn't anything left on a plate. When we cleaned the plates, there was no waste. And that was teachable for me because, you know, our Wednesday night suppers at church, there was a lot of food waste. And so I just like, and to, there's something in that that's not just about hunger, but it's also about that encounter with others and uh, just that there's enough, you know, there is enough. That, that was a, that trip to Cuba taught me a lot about um, a, nar a narrative of abundance, God's abundance, and, and to recognize that fear of scarcity in myself, like, oh my God, we're never going to get the cook. <laughs> we're never going to feed all these people. We're never going to get that spaghetti cooked, but we did. And it was, it was fun and it was joyful. And, you know, we still talk about that spaghetti dinner. There was a, on the first trip that we went, which was an exploratory trip to see if we thought we could really do this relationship. Um, there were maybe seven people on that trip. And Kim Johnson, who was an ex-Marine, I guess always a Marine, once a Marine, always a Marine, was on that trip. And uh, Steve had given me the responsibility to do like a, an opening devotion the first night. And so, of course, Anne and her, the way my brain thinks and art, um, I brought different spools, spools of wire. And so I was thinking about we're going to be bound together with these people in Cuba, this encounter. So clip pieces of wire and then weave them together like for this encounter and create a shape that you think this, you know, this trip is gonna, you know, what you think this ministry could become for IOL. And Kim was so frustrated because I just had like balls of wire and, you know, you're just supposed to pass them around. He's like, he took every spool of wire and like neatly organized it. So you could like cut off. He's like, what size does the wire need to be? <laughs> I'm like, no, use your freedom of choice. He's like, I need clear instructions here. So <laughs> anyway, um, okay. So I gave you two memories, but really it's the, uh, I think it's the, the hospitality in that um, ministry of encounter and just trusting in God's abundance. Yeah. What are you hoping for in the next stage of your journey in ministry? Hmm. Look at you turning my question around. What am I hoping for? Well, I would hope for continued faithfulness, continued open-heartedness and joy, a trust that God is preparing a people and a place for me, um, but not knowing where that is. That's what I hope. 
and that's what I know. I know it. If I'm, if I'm honest, I know that God will have me where God needs to have me. If I have learned anything this last year, it's probably that, you know, there were times in church um, for the prayers of the people over this, um, the last year, but really coming through the summer and just how hard the <clears throat> Steve's unexpected death was. And I mean, it was hard enough kind of where life was in the church. It was hard. We were working, we'd gone from four pastors to two carrying a body through a time of transition, the pandemic and in the prayers of the people. It was like, I was almost daring God. <laughs> like we are praying for that pastor that God is preparing <laughs> to bring to the world. <laughs> like hurry up already, God. I don't know why I'm telling you all that, but I think it's something about uh, early in my ministry. I had, I was, um, I led a retreat somewhere and somebody just wrote me a thank you note out of that. And in the midst of that thank you note, uh, that person named that what I know is that God is preparing a place and a people for you. I think I was actually still in seminary at the time. And so that person used that language with me. And so to remember that it's really not about us, but it's about God and God shaping us for um, particular ministry. So when you talk about what's next for me, what I know is right now is I trust that God's going to let me know. But I, what I hope for myself is continued faithfulness. Last question. It's a fun one. At least I think it's fun. If you were stranded on a deserted island, what are three things you would want to have with you? Okay, so I'm going to take thing liberally and, you know, like, I won't make it a person. Because I absolutely positively would have to have Jim. Because... <laughs> Everybody needs Jim. <laughs> Jim is always going. We need Jim on the team, right, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, we do. <laughs> I mean, he moved in our China cabinet. I'm going to agree with you. Jim counts. That's Jim, your number one. Jim counts. Number one, Jim. I mean, Andrew, do you remember running the marathon where they like they took the loop of the that last loop of the marathon? You, we were on a what is that, Danny Thomas? And then you had to run up into you had to run uphill. Yeah, yeah. Jim came back for me so that I could to run me through that last yeah. part of the the marathon. The meanest I, part like, of that marathon, like, oh, you're the, almost there. Not yeah, surprise. Here's an extra mile. That yeah, that part. I think they changed that, and I think they finally realized it was just cruel, but <laughs> an unusual punishment. Yeah, for something we pay to do, but we won't. Talk yeah, about. and it's already a marathon, so it's already cruel and unusual. But anyway. So yeah. number one thing is Jim, because he's an encourager and he gets stuff done. Um, wouldn't leave me. I need people too. I couldn't be by myself. <laughs> I am an extrovert in case you didn't know that. Matches, because we need fire. We we like to sit by the fire together. I'm sitting in here by the fire tonight. Um, fire, fire, fire. Surely on that island, there'd be something to burn. Um, Jim fire music i think would be my third thing some kind of music because surely we could find something to eat on that island right i think so I and think we could so. make art out of the things that are there so yeah. i think music to stir my soul matches to start a fire and jim to make sure all the other things got done <laughs> I like it 
What would y'all take? Ooh. We're going together, so we're gonna we're gonna cheat on that first one. You know, we're like, oh, oh, so yeah, you get you get more things because you're going together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, I like your idea of matches, and this is gonna sound like the most pandemic answer ever, but like toilet paper. Do we need toilet paper? <laughs> I mean, leaves, leaves, Laura, leaves. Uh, I'm telling you, but okay, toilet paper. Hey, still have to see from March and nowhere in Memphis having toilet paper and water. Now where we are, yeah, some sort of yeah. I think a filtration. I feel like I've watched. I feel like I've watched. I think my decisions are uh, affected by watching too many like Discovery Channel like survival shows. So I'm always like a knife. yeah, you need a water filter and a knife, you know, or some, some, something to cut, you know, you gotta, I don't know, you gotta cut down the tree to get the coconut or something like that. You've got to have your cutting implement. And- See, I trust Jim would bring those things along because he knows that. Hey, um, so here, let's end our time together. Let's do this right. Let's do it. What do you know and what do you hope? Today, let's just for today. What do you know and what do you hope? So this is what I know. I know that I'm so grateful that we got to spend this time together tonight because I love y'all and I haven't seen y'all. I haven't heard your voices. It's fun to long time. I know. So I, I know that I am grateful and especially for the time we had together tonight and what I hope. (laughs) I don't know what I hope. I want to say like, I hope, hmm, I hope that, um, I hope that we can still see one another and somehow connect, even if it's at the dog park or running through Overton Park, something like that. Because I just recognizing what I know to be joyful about the connection tonight, but also recognizing that I'm walking away from church. But I hope that I don't lose this connection. So, and the gratitude. This, so, yeah. What do you hope? What do you know? I think I know that we we've had such a great time tonight because we have such a great connection and we're going to continue that. And what I hope is that I hope that the, the in-person side of that comes sooner rather than later. It's like, you know, it's coming. just hope it's quick kind of thing. Amen, man. This, yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to pull you and say, I know a couple of things. And one is, that I'm a crier, so I know that there's a 50% chance that I'm going to cry before I get all of this out. (laughs) Um, But I know that you have been such an influential part of our lives. See, I can't do it. Um, And so I know that we're always going to be in each other's lives. And I hope that this stupid pandemic ends sooner rather than later so we can hug your neck mm-hmm. I, I, amen 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 let's pray y'all uh here we are the debts and the debtors <laughs> who have trespassed and who have trespasses <laughs> and what we know god is that you're a god that gathers us together and you gather us together in ways uh that we could have never imagined. So I thank you, God, for Andrew and Laura. 
I remember the days when I was like, Andrew, dude, is like that relationship like real? Like what's going on there? Tell me about her. And gosh, to sit on this side of, from those early days is just such a gift. And so thank you, God, for the gift of their life together and their marriage. And thank you for the families from which they came that taught them much about marriage and that gift. So God, thank you for this time to uh, ask questions in anticipation of a podcast that have ranged from, (laughs) it's been all over the place from what things we need on desert islands to the power of art, to pastoral care, to places where you've gathered us, whether it's Nakomi or at your table in worship, Cuba. So for the memories that we share, what we know is we have gratitude for those. And so God, in the same ways that we wish we could be together tomorrow so we could just hug one another's neck, I also pray um, for those who feel most isolated in this pandemic um, and this weather. Um, Help us remember that You call us to be the church and help us to serve as faithfully as we can um, to be that. So thank you for Andrew and Laura. Um, (laughs) And and, uh, I trust you to perfect this prayer until you gather us together again. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, really in the name of Jesus Christ that I offer this prayer. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to nominate someone to be featured on a future episode of God in the Wild, please contact Sherry Gross, coordinator of the Nurture Ministry Unit at sgross at idlewildchurch.org. May God be with you in the wild.